Welcome to the Rosemont Baptist Church Podcast. Rosemont is a thriving group of believers who desire to connect with Jesus and His church, grow in faith and understanding of God's Word, and serve in our local area and around the world. We are located in LaGrange, Georgia at 3794 Hamilton Road and invite you to attend any of our three services on Sunday mornings. Please visit our website at rosemontchurch.org for more information. And now we pray that God speaks to you in a personal way as you listen to this week's message from Pastor Adam Camp. Take your Bibles and open to 2 Chronicles chapter 7. 2 Chronicles chapter 7. Happy 4th of July as we celebrate today the independence of our country. I looked and it has been uh, 11 years since July the 4th was on a Sunday. And so I'm going to take the liberty this morning of stepping away from Philippians Oh, okay. Thank you. One person got that. Thank you. Three people got it in the 930 service. Y'all a little below average. Uh, I'm going to step away from, from Philippians this morning, and we're going to look at Second Chronicles and, and think about how the Lord speaks about nations. Right? We think about individuals. We think about our walk with Christ, but the Lord speaks about nations as well oftentimes, and we all are familiar uh, with today. We know what today Represents and what we celebrate, July the 4th, 1776, Declaration of Independence was signed, officially declaring the independence from the British and really beginning the United States of America. Uh, many of you probably know this, but I want to say it up front because it really uh, forms the basis of what I'm going to be saying this morning uh, and what we're going to see in Scripture. Uh, our country, I believe, was founded by Christians that desired to have a nation grounded in the Christian faith. And anybody that tells you otherwise about America either has never really studied history or is lying to you. And so I want to kind of examine this morning's scripture and understand what the Lord says to nations. But then I want to understand how that applies to us and how we can think about it this morning in light of our country, especially on the 4th of July. If you don't know anything about Second Chronicles, it's really the history of Israel it talks about King Solomon, and in the context we're going to be reading and studying this morning, King Solomon has just completed the construction of the temple. It's been dedicated, and then the Lord is going to come to Solomon in, in a dream and speak to him about the people of Israel, the nation, and how they should respond. So let's jump right in, Second Chronicles chapter 7, beginning in verse 11. <clears throat> Thus Solomon finished the house of the Lord and the king's house. All that Solomon had planned to do in the house of the Lord and in his own house, he successfully accomplished. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon in the night and said to him, I have heard your prayers and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. Right, So the temple has been built. It's been dedicated. The Lord has come to him. Now verse 13, again, the words of the Lord. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among my people, if my people, who are called by my name, humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayer that is made in this place. Now, this was written specifically to Solomon. 
specifically to the people of Israel. But I believe, as is the case with all scripture, there is absolute truth here. And I believe there are things that apply not only to the people of Israel, but apply to us today. And so let's take this text, let's understand this truth, and let's figure out how we can apply it in 2021. Here's the first truth I want you to see this morning based on what the Lord said to Solomon. Number one, the United States is blessed only because we have followed the Lord. The United States is blessed only because we have followed the Lord. Now, I know the Lord is speaking to Israel here, and I know he's talking to Solomon, but there are things in here I want you to see and understand that translate still today. And the first one is found there in verse 14. I want you to look at that and see it. So pull up verse 14 if you would. I want you to notice what the Lord says. The Lord says in verse 14, if my people who are called by my name, that's you by the way, right? This was written a long time ago, but when the Lord speaks to his people, the people that are called by his name, he's talking to the believers. Now I'm reminded of Psalm 33, 12, which says, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his inheritance, Right, we, we understand that when a nation follows the Lord, more specifically, watch, when the people of God within that nation, Christians, follow the Lord, that nation is going to be blessed. Now, we know there are a lot of gods we can choose. Right, We've been walking through the book of Philippians, and I try to talk a lot to you and really challenge you with kind of the gods or the idols of this world material possessions, fame, fortune, on and on the list goes. And we kind of have to choose, don't we? Am I going to follow those gods or am I going to follow the true and living God of the scripture? And so we begin to understand that there are certainly things in our nation, other gods that we can follow. We're reminded though scripturally that we are blessed when a country, when a nation, when the people of God follow the Lord. Now, we've probably been told, or maybe you've heard this in, in the national media or social media or, or, or some political person maybe you've listened to, that America is uh, no different than we're just like every other country in the world. There's nothing special about America. And, and without the Lord's blessing, I would agree with that. But I believe that our country was founded on Christian principles. And I believe our country was founded with a Christian heritage. And so I want to take a few minutes this morning just to kind of help you understand. I love history. I enjoy reading history. And given the opportunity, I like to talk about history, especially American history. And I'm going to spend a few minutes just kind of helping you understand and showing you that our country was founded on Christian principles and then make the connection that because of those principles, that because we followed the Lord, because we've trusted him, the Lord has blessed our country. So just a little bit of history. How many of you guys have heard of the pilgrims, right? Probably all of you, you should have. None of you, that's great. This illustration ought to go real well. Okay, a couple of you know about the pilgrims. Uh, The pilgrims came in 1620, Massachusetts, right? They sailed from England. They thought they were going to Virginia because of trade winds and and lack of good GPS signal, right, in 1620. Uh, They were blown a good bit north and ended up in Massachusetts, right? Well, they settled off the coast before they even came on land. So they're literally uh, harbored. They're kind of, they got the anchor down. They're sitting a couple of hundred yards off the shore. And they decide, listen, before we go ashore, let's write out an agreement, 
Let's put something on paper. Let's help the world from this point forward to know and to kind of hold ourselves accountable while we're doing this, right? So why did the pilgrims come? Now, if you were to read modern textbooks, and I know they're hard to, to find nowadays, hard to get your hand on an actual textbook, but if you were to read a textbook, you would, you would see all sorts of other reasons the pilgrims came. So what I like to do, and this is uh, an important thing in, in biblical study or in historical research, is to look at source material, right? Not what does some commentator say about the pilgrims. What did the pilgrims actually say, right? And so we've got the Mayflower Compact written in 1620. You can Google this on your own if you want to, if you're interested in learning a little more about history. But I've got a little quote from the Mayflower Compact written by the pilgrims, 1620 in their own words. Let's see what they say. In the name of God, amen, we whose names are underwritten, they, they all signed it, by the way, the loyal subjects of our dread sovereign Lord, King James, by the grace of God of Great Britain, France, and Ireland, King, Defender of the Faith, having undertaken, here's three reasons they came to America, the glory of God, advancement of the Christian faith, honor of king and country, a voyage to plant the first colony in the northern parts of Virginia. Remember, they thought they were in Virginia, but the wind had blown them to Massachusetts, right? So they give three reasons here. Glory of God, advancement of the Christian faith, honor of king and country, right? Now, they want you to know very specifically, very clearly, they came here to bring honor to the Lord and to advance the Christian faith. And so anybody that tells you the pilgrims came here for any other reason doesn't understand history. It's pretty clear, pretty obvious. It may take you a few minutes to find it because it's been removed from certain places and you don't see it uh, talked about very much. But if you really study and understand, you understand that the first people that came to our country came to bring glory to the Lord, to advance the Christian faith and honor of their king and their country. Now, some of you might be thinking, this is great. Pilgrims come in 1620, they get here, they settle Massachusetts Bay Colony, and then after that, things must have changed, right? Things probably went downhill. They may have started with the desire to honor the Lord. They may have started with the desire to spread the Christian faith, to advance the Christian faith in their own words. But after a few years, surely that went downhill. They weren't as excited about it. It didn't mean as much to them. Let's fast forward 1647 again in Massachusetts, the old Satan Deluder Act. Now this is real. You can go look it up. You can Google it if you want to. What they realized is that people couldn't read. And they wanted people to read for one very specific reason. They wanted people to be able to read their Bibles. And so the old Satan Deluder Act says this. Bring it up. It's being, excuse me, it being one chief project that the old deluder Satan to keep men from the knowledge of the scriptures, right? They believed that the devil didn't want people to be able to read because if they couldn't read, they couldn't read the scriptures. Now, this is a public school act, by the way, right? You should do your research. Public school act, 1647. It is therefore ordered by this court and the authority thereof that every township in this jurisdiction, after the Lord hath increased them to the number of 50 households, shall then forthwith appoint one within their town to teach all such children as shall resort to him to write and read. Right? You need to understand public schooling in this country was started so that Satan would trick people so people could learn to read so they could read their Bibles. Right, 1647. So we're going 1620, 1647, 1687. New England primer. You can Google this one as well. 
New England Primer, we've got a little note about this. I want you to listen to what it says. The New England Primer was the first reading primer designed for the American colonies. It became the most successful educational textbook published in the 18th century America, and it became the foundation of most schooling before the 1790s. Now you say, big deal, it was the first textbook, so what? You should spend some time on Google this afternoon reading about the New England Primer because it's chock full of the Bible. They taught kids to read based on Bible verses. They taught them their ABCs based on Scripture. A, and they'd have a verse. B, and they'd have a verse. All through this book was Scripture. All through this book was Christ, right? And so you, you need to understand from the Mayflower Compact to the old St. Deluder Act to the New England Primer, our country has this foundation of seeing and understanding and believing in Scripture in believing in the Christian faith, a desire to teach it, a desire to learn it, a desire to pass it on to the next generation. Now, here's what's very interesting about this. We're in the late 1700s, the 1600s. And New England Primer comes out, is widely circulated throughout all of New England. Who knows how many thousands of children studied and learned it. Now, watch. The people that wrote the Declaration of Independence would have learned from this textbook And so we would expect the idea of Christianity, that fabric of trusting in the Lord, to make its way into some of these founding documents. And so we see, for example, in the Declaration of Independence, pull it up if you would, please. You've seen this before and read it. When in the course of human events it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them to another... And to assume among, listen, the powers of the earth, the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them, a decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires they should declare the causes which impel them to that separation. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. They are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights that among these are life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness." Right, we, we see kind of built into, baked into the, the fabric of our country, the beginnings of the people that came here for the very first time, this desire to seek Christianity, to seek the Lord, to trust the Lord. I'm reminded of 2 Chronicles 7, 14. If my people who are called by my name, right? So there's this, I believe, a direct correlation between founding a country on Christian principles, trusting the Lord, seeking the Lord, and receiving the blessings of the Lord. So I would say to you, any blessings or or good things that our country has received over the years are a direct result of the Lord blessing us. You understand that? And when the Christians, and we're going we're gonna to bring this a lot closer to home here in just a few minutes, when the Christians of the world and of the country begin to understand that, it ought to affect the way they think. It ought to affect the way they live. So let's continue. Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 13, the words of the Lord. When I shut up the heavens so that there's no rain or command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among my people, if my people who are called by my name, several things they got to do here, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Here's the second truth. If the United States is going to heal, we must humble ourselves, pray, and turn from our sin. 
the United States is going to heal, we must humble ourselves, pray, and turn from our sin. I think we could probably all go around the room and probably make some comment or have some sort of an opinion about the United States, about our country, about us heading in kind of a bad direction, probably on a thousand different levels. We can talk about morality. We can talk about truth being relative. We can talk about church attendance and baptisms going down and down, steadily decreasing over the last decades. We probably would all agree on some level that our land needs to be healed. Now, here's what we typically do. Here's what I typically do. When I think about the problems in our country, and again, I'm sure we could name a lot of them, I like to blame somebody else. It's clearly somebody else's fault, right? We like to blame politicians. We like to blame other people, on and on the list, because it's very easy for us to cast blame somewhere else. But I, I want to get away from the desire to cast blame somewhere else. And instead, I want to see what the Scripture says. And what the Scripture says, if my people who are called by my name, so watch. Listen, if there's any hope for this country, if there's any hope for repentance, uh, reconciliation, forgiveness, uh, uh, a revival, whatever word you want to use. If there's any hope for that, it's only going to come when believers humble themselves and pray and seek the Lord. Listen, if you have some hope that an unbeliever is going to do something to rescue our country, you're sadly mistaken. It's just not going to happen. What we see in Scripture is it's the responsibility of believers. That's you and me. We've been given this great responsibility within our nation, I believe, to do the things the Lord has called us to do, to humble ourselves first, right? Humility's not easy, is it? But we don't like to be humble. We like to be proud. We like to be boastful. We like to think about how good we are. But humility is the opposite of that, right? A spirit of submission to put others above ourselves, not haughty, not arrogant. James chapter four, verse six says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. One, one writer said it like this, to be humble is to realize how weak we are, how helpless we are to change the course of our lives in our own power. It's to ask God for his forgiveness, to trust him for his guidance, he wants us to realize and confess our helplessness, our sinfulness, and our complete need for him in our lives, right? We need a different perspective. We need to understand that he is God and we are not. And so we begin with this idea of humility. If the Lord's going to heal our land, if the Lord's going to continue to bless us, we begin with this idea of humility. We're going to humble ourselves before the Lord. And then the Bible says we should pray, right? We humble ourselves and pray. This is the idea of, of prayer within struggle. In, in the context of 2 Chronicles 7, right, it was a difficult time for these people. Uh, the, the captivity in Babylon is about to come. Bad things are about to happen for them. And so the Lord encourages them and challenges them to pray. Because I want you to notice what happens in verse 13. Pull verse 13 up again for me, please. It's not if, right, the very first word there in verse 13 is not if, the Lord says when. I shut up the heavens so there's no rain or command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among my people, right? Not if difficult times are going to come, but when. We, we all have lived, most of us have probably lived long enough to know it's not if, it's when. So there's this idea within that context of humility. There's this idea within that context of trusting the Lord. 
And there's this idea that we're preparing, right? Not if difficulty's gonna come, but when it comes. And we begin to understand this perspective. And I've pointed this out in certainly other parts of the New Testament. But there's this perspective in Scripture that sometimes God allows us to go through suffering in order to strengthen our faith, in order to draw us closer to him. But in those moments of struggle, in those moments of suffering, uh, in those moments of difficulty, our call is to humble ourselves, to trust him, and to pray. Now, here's the problem with prayer for most of us. Right? We, we all are giving the thumbs up on prayer. Absolutely. Prayer is the key. Nothing's ever going to change if we don't pray. We know the power of prayer. We know the significance of prayer. We know how many times Christ commanded us to pray. We can talk a lot about prayer. We're just not praying a whole lot. Right? That, that's the, probably the weakness of the modern Western Christian. We understand a lot about prayer. We can talk about it. We can sing about it. We can mention it in our Sunday school class. We get it. We're just not praying very much. And so just a couple of verses maybe to remind you of the significance of prayer. 1 Thessalonians 5, 17 says, pray without ceasing. Right? That's all the time. Romans 12, 12, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Colossians 4, 2, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Ephesians 6, 18, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. Right? There's this idea scripturally that we should be praying all the time, ongoing, regular, constant, not just at the end of the day when we got a couple of minutes, not just before we eat, not just occasionally during a quiet time, this ongoing process of praying, right? So if we're going to see change, if we're going to see healing, if we expect or hope for the Lord to bless our nation, it comes as believers humble themselves, as believers pray, as believers seek the Lord. And then kind of the difficult part here at the end of this verse, pray, seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways. Right? If we want to see revival in our country, it's going to begin with repentance in the heart of the Christian. You understand that? We can't expect unbelievers to bring revival. We can't expect them to act like Christians because they're not. Right? Believers are the ones that have to seek the Lord. Believers are the ones that have to humble themselves. Believers are the ones that have to turn from their sin. And so, so part of this process, remember, anything we, anytime we study Scripture, we should examine our lives, compare it to the truth of Scripture. How much are we praying? How humble are we before the Lord? How often are we turning from our sins and repentance towards the things of the Lord? Right? If we're really going to seek the Lord, if the Lord's really going to work in our country, these are the things believers need to do. Now, let's kind of finish this thing up. Look at verse 16. Chronicles 7, 2 Chronicles 7, verse 16. The Lord again speaking to Solomon. For now I have chosen and consecrated this house that my name may be there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. And as for you, now he's speaking directly to King Solomon here. As for you, if you will walk before me as David your father walked, doing according to all that I have commanded you and keeping my statutes and my rules, then I will establish your royal, your royal throne. As I covenanted with David, your father, saying, you shall not lack a man to rule Israel. 
But if you turn aside and forsake my statutes and my commandments that I've set before you and go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will pluck you from my land that I have given you. And this house that I have consecrated for my name, I will cast out of my sight. I will make it a proverb and a byword among all peoples. And at this house, which was exalted, everyone passing by will be astonished and say, why has the Lord done this to this land and to this house? Then they will say, because they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, laid hold of other God, on other gods, and worshiped them and served them. Therefore, he has brought all this disaster on them. Here's the third truth I want you to see this morning. If the United States abandons the Lord, it will cease to exist. If the United States abandons the Lord, it will cease to exist. There's a great warning here from the Lord. Right? There's this beautiful picture the Lord gives to Solomon of prayer and humility and turning from sin and repentance. There's this beautiful picture of trusting the Lord, following him, the Lord blessing his people, the Lord blessing a nation. But there's also a great warning here. That if we turn aside from the Lord, then he will destroy us. We need to be very careful here. right? Because if we're thinking about our country, pull, pull verse 19 up again if you would for me, please. I want you to see the words here. But if you turn aside and forsake my statutes and my commandments that I have set before you and go and serve other gods and worship them, I will pluck you up from my land that I have given you and this house that I have consecrated for my name I will cast out of my sight. I will make it a proverb and a byword among all peoples. You know, I just feel like we can kind of find our country right there in verse 19. I feel like we've turned aside We've forsaken the commands of the Lord. We've served other gods and we've worshiped them. I feel like we're right there. Like I, I think the United States of America, if we're not careful, is right there in verse 19. And so I see this as a warning for our country, but it's a warning for believers. Like what are we doing about this? How often are we praying about this? How much are we seeking the Lord? Are we humbling ourselves? Are we asking the Lord to bless us? Because what we see here is the Lord speaking directly to Solomon, and he's commanding Solomon to walk in the commands of the Lord, right? And so what we see here in the Old Testament is the Lord commanded these kings, he commanded these leaders to be godly, to walk in righteousness, so I would say to you, listen, as a country, as believers, we need to not only take responsibility ourselves, but we need to hold our leaders responsible, right? From the, from the very local level all the way up to our president, right? Those people need to be held accountable. And we need to understand that the Lord says to us, listen, when people follow me, when leaders follow me, our country will be blessed, and so I want to just give you a, a quick history lesson here. We're almost done. Just a quick history lesson kind of on where we've been, right? Because I think we make this compelling case that the country was founded on Christian beliefs. I think that can be seen throughout our founding fathers as well, our early presidents, and should continue on for today. So let's just look at a couple other quotes and, and kind of finish up. Look at Britannica.com right here. Uh, it, talking about our founding fathers talking about the beginnings of our country, says most founders appear to have been orthodox or, quote, right-believing Christians. 
Most were baptized, listed on church rolls, married, practicing Christians, and frequent or at least sporadic attenders of services of Christian worship. In public statements, most invoked divine assistance. And now you can go back again. I I told you a little while ago to kind of look at stuff yourself. You can go back and read a lot of the early founding fathers and what they said and what they believed. I'm going to give you just a few. George Washington. Obviously, we know who he is. First president of the United States, founder of the country. I want you to listen to what he says. You do well to wish to learn our arts and ways of life and above all the religion of Jesus Christ. These will make you a greater and happier people than you are. While we are zealously performing the duties of good citizens and soldiers, we certainly ought not to be inattentive to the higher duties of religion To the distinguished character of patriot, it should be our highest glory to add the more distinguished character of Christian. Right? This is George Washington. If you've never read a biography, I know biographies sometimes seem seem old and boring, but a biography of Washington would be fascinating to you to learn about who he is, what he believed, what he thought. If you go to Mount Vernon, which is where George Washington lived, he's buried there with his wife Martha, right above his tomb. John chapter 11, verse 25 and 26. Jesus said to her, I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? This is George Washington. John Adams, second president of the United States, signer of the Declaration of Independence. Here's what he said. Suppose a nation in some distant region should take the Bible for their only law book And every member should regulate his conduct by the precepts there exhibited. What a utopia. What a paradise would this region be. The general principles in which the fathers achieved independence were the general principles of Christianity. I will avow that I then believed and now believe that those general principles of Christianity are as eternal and immutable as the existence and the attributes of God. John Quincy Adams. Secretary of State, a U.S. representative, senator, the sixth president of the United States. Here's what he said. The hope of a Christian is inseparable from his faith. Whoever denies, excuse me, whoever believes in the divine inspiration of the Holy Scriptures must hope that the religion of Jesus shall prevail throughout the earth. Neither since the foundation of the world have the prospects of mankind been more encouraging to that hope than they appear to be at the present time. In the chain of human events, the birthday of our nation is indissolubly linked with the birthday of the Savior. The Declaration of Independence laid the cornerstone of human government upon the first precepts of Christianity. Right? On and on I could go. I've got a lot more quotes here. I don't have time to get to here. But I want to challenge you and encourage you that we live in a country that was founded on Christian principles. Right, from the very beginning of the Mayflower Compact all the way through today, we understand scripturally that a country founded on the things of the Lord, a country that seeks the Lord, will be blessed, and a country that does not will not be blessed. I, I want to end this morning with the farewell address of George Washington. When he finished up as president, September of 1776, he gave this speech. Here's what he said. The propitious smiles of heaven can never be expected on a nation that disregards the eternal rules of right and order which heaven itself has ordained. Of all the dispositions and habits which lead to political prosperity, religion and morality are indispensable supports. In vain would that man claim the tribute of patriotism 
who should labor to subvert these great pillars of human happiness, these firmest props of the duties of men and citizens, right? We should take the responsibility as followers of Jesus Christ to humble ourselves, to pray for our nation, to turn to the Lord, turn from our wicked ways to Christ and ask the Lord to bless us. Ask the Lord to use us, to do great things through us. And so I pray as we celebrate the fourth today, as we have fun with family and friends, do whatever you want to do, but remember the blessings of the Lord. Remember the blessings of our country and seek him. Trust him. Ask him to continue to bless us in all that we do. Now let me pray for us this morning. Father, we just thank you for the clear picture in Second Chronicles, Father, that you gave to Solomon the warning you gave to the people of Israel. Father, this challenge you gave to them to trust you, to turn from their sins, to honor you, to seek you in prayer, to humble themselves. Father, I I pray that that same challenge would resonate in our hearts today as we celebrate the 4th, as we celebrate the independence of our country. Let us celebrate, Father, all you've done for us. Use us, challenge us, Father. Lead us to do great things. We'll give you the praise and the honor and the glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.